Okay, so as we come to the body portion, like I said, we're going to look at the body for a couple weeks. We need to begin um, by recognizing um, this sort of long and tortured relationship the church has had with the body. Um, In particular, uh, put simply, we've tended to say this, the spirit and the things of the spirit, such as going to church, and praying, and reading your Bible, and uh, evangelism, mission. Those are holy things, right? And those are the sacred things. And that's the stuff that seems to matter to God, and so that's the stuff we need to be about, right? While the body, and the things of the body, the physical stuff, like shopping for groceries, and walking your dog, and sexual intimacy, and going to your physical therapist, and, and dropping your kids off at school, and, and then going to your day-to-day job, your ordinary job, that stuff's not holy, <laughs> It's not spiritual in some cases, but it doesn't matter to God. And so we, we just don't, it doesn't matter that much. Really? And, and, and so uh, that's kind of our long and tortured history. In fact, Tina Sellers, who's a friend of mine, was a professor, at, a colleague of Thane's at Seattle Pacific, mentor to many in our community. She wrote a book in 2017 called Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. Try it. It's a really good book. She says this in there about that. She says, while there's many significant figures in history who contributed to the split in Christianity between spirit and body, what's important to note is that in failing to understand the central significance of the body, which uh, includes our sexuality, our desires for connection, our need for a lived embodied experience, Christianity lost what could have been 2,000 years of learning what it means to use our senses to love like Jesus. Loving one's partner, loving one's children, loving one's neighbors, loving the difficult to love, and loving the created world. Christianity lost the opportunity to understand the image of God within the body. That's two millennia of valuing, cherishing, and celebrating the gift of the body lost. Ouch. <laughs> like we're lost in some respects. And I, or I should say we never, we never found, never been taught the value and the riches and the sacredness of our bodies, of an embodied faith. And so as we begin today, it's critical we begin by acknowledging that history, the consequences of that history, and recognize that that was never the way it was supposed to be. Indeed, um, from the moment that Mary agrees to give birth to Jesus, bodies become these sites of revelation and redemptive action. Jesus' mission began with a touch by water and by a dove. It's physical. It's embodied. He's not a philosopher just simply engaging people's minds. Uh, He's a man who held people, was held by people. He healed them, not with merely words, but with hands, in some cases spit. His ministry, from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, and then far beyond, even when he invited a dubious friend of his to, to put his fingers in the holes in his side, in his hands, it involved touch. <laughs> he was decidedly this embodied, incarnate being. And thus, for, here's a thesis for David. In order for us For the spirit of Christ within us, who lives within us, that's what we've been talking about, to find this robust expression through us uh, in our lived experience, we have to join Jesus as he engages us in our bodies or literally embodies the gospel to us. And that's what this story in John 5 is really all about. It's about embodiment. At first glance, it just seems like a simple story, really terse and, and brief, about a sick man who's healed by Jesus and then goes on to live his life, on to the future. But what we find is Jesus is not just healing this man from paralysis. He's embodying for this man and for us what it looks like to express and to experience the gospel. He's, he's taking a man who's been cast out, beaten, broken, and moving toward him in love and the most physical of ways you can imagine. He is, he, is, he is bringing him back to the full wholeness that God intended for his life. 
He's saying, do you want to be made whole? That's, this is a story about wholeness, not just about physical healing. It's an invitation toward body, soul, spirit, um, wholeness. Do you want to experience that in your life, he's saying. Uh, that's the question on the table for us today as we sit here. And, and if you do, like I think many of us do, we want wholeness. That would be awesome. Um, then let's look at John 5 together. And we'll consider through this story these three realities of wholeness which are um, why we're not whole, how we try to make ourselves whole, and then how we're actually made whole, okay? We're going to kind of just go through the text. So you can have that open if you'd like, and we'll just kind of study it together, the first nine verses. Let's look at the first six first, and that's where we find that why we're not whole. And look at this story with me. It's just fascinating. Um, first of all, the context in verse 1, we're just told that it's set in Jerusalem during a festival, an important festival. And the festival isn't really the, the point, you can kind of picture in a festival environment in Jerusalem, like there are pilgrims, visitors all throughout the city coming there to worship and celebrate and eat foods and see the sights. There's probably live music and vendors and attractions throughout the city. It's probably a beautiful time. What's important is to notice where Jesus goes immediately when he gets to the city. When he arrives in the city, he doesn't head to a venue or a popular marketplace. He goes immediately to a place of great need near what's known as the Sheep Gate or a place called Bethesda which is a place where livestock are brought into the city, hence why it's called the Sheep Gate, kind of a vendor's entrance, really the back door to Jerusalem. And it's near that entrance, John tells us that there's a series of pools, which legend has, as you read this sort of verse that's eliminated, taken out of this story, that, that it had healing properties. There's something restorative about the water in these, these pools, which is why around the pools in verse 3 we're told that there's gathered a great number of disabled and very sick people just lying around begging and hoping for this opportunity to be healed. Um, In particular, verse 5 tells us, which is the focus of our story, there's a certain man, a paraplegic, who'd been there for 38 years, which is almost your entire life. And what's significant to know that in his paralysis, his physical powerlessness to do anything with his legs, really, or his body, uh, that would have just been the beginning of his problems in that time. So he was likely grossly disfigured because... In that time, there's no wheelchairs, there's no elevators, there's no ADA-accessible buildings like ours here, which meant to get around Jerusalem, picture rough, stony streets, he drug himself everywhere. And so he's probably disfigured by this. 38 years of dragging yourself around. But he's, his disfigurement is just the beginning of his problems. He's also been likely disowned. So very often in the first century, people with disabilities, as a result of that, were rejected by their families. They, they, they're communities. They see, they're seen as cursed, like God's done something. This is Job's story. It's God's done something to you. You deserve this. And so socially, he's very isolated. Um, he's physically isolated. He's emotionally isolated. He's socially He's spiritually isolated. He would not be welcome in a, a congregation like ours today. He would not be welcome. Would, because, see, the, the view is that there's sin in his life. He'd be seen as a reprobate and somebody who's cursed by God. We would never want him through our doors. Don't darken the door of this church, is what we would say. Which is why in verse 7, here's, here's the crux of this part of the story. In reply to Jesus' question, do you want to be made well? He says, sir, he doesn't even answer the question. He says, sir, I have no one. How about that for an answer? I, in other words, there's no one in my life that could or would help this guy. No one to extend friendship. No one to express mercy and love. Nobody who even cared a lick about this guy for 30, just picture this. I, I, I like solitude like the next person, but 38 years, that's just a little too much, you know? And 38 years, no one. 
And a con- as a consequence of, of having no one, being no one, just decades of that, decades of isolation, there would just been immense consequences, almost impossible to fathom. One way of maybe illustrating this that I thought of this week is this story of this guy named Michel Sifre, who is a geologist turned researcher, who on Valentine's Day of 1972, and by the way, don't try this out, guys. Get chocolates or, or roses, trust me. On Valentine's Day of 1972, he kissed his wife goodbye, and he descended 100 feet into this cave in Texas called the Midnight Cave. You know about the Midnight Cave? You're from Texas. Here you go. 100 feet down, and he'd spent six months there, utterly alone in utter darkness. And he wanted to find out what would happen to your body if you did this. Um, This is what, I guess, researchers do. So if you spent six months in a dark cave in isolation and sensory deprivation, what's going to happen? And to make a long story short, what happened to him in in that context of sensory and social deprivation was this gradual yet profound deterioration in his psychological state not just his physical state, he became suicidal. He began to forget things, basic things, not like what, what day it was, the name of his dog, his address, his kids' birthdays. He, his memory deteriorated so much that he began writing things down um, to for, for prevent forgetting them. At the three-month mark, halfway in, he called ground control, his support team, and said, hey, I've had enough. And they said, everything's fine up here. Stick with it. <laughs> Three more months. When he eventually emerged from the cave, he was literally a changed man. When you read his story, three years after leaving Midnight Cave, he had memory lapses. His eyesight remained poor. He described in his journals an an inexplicable psychological wound from that time. Uh, He divorced, and according to one report, he went off to South America to recover for years from this episode. And so, though that's a fascinating story, and like I said, don't try it at home, but um, that's just six months. Think of it. That's just a psychological experiment to see what would happen. This guy, 38 years, a lifetime of isolation. And he's physically disabled. He's disfigured. He's physically wounded and broken. But think of his physical deterioration and isolation in terms of Sifre's story. Think of the social, emotional, and spiritual um, trauma he probably endured. Like, what, who knows what kind of hardness of heart and hopelessness might have just set it into him after all those years. Who knows what kind of anger and envy and bitterness and rage and jealousy there was just lying beneath the surface, uh, which gets to the heart of why we're not whole. Remember, why aren't aren't we whole? Sir, I have no one. We're not designed to have no one. We were never designed for that. We're, We're not built for isolation. Genesis, remember first chapter of Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. Whether it's life in a cave or in a Texas or alienated beside a pool in a major metropolitan city, we're whole beings designed and built for wholeness, which includes physical flourishing, emotional flourishing, as well as social flourishing. Uh, there's a sense in which this man needs to be restored to the community that he'd been alienated and shut out of. There's a sense in which, a profound sense in which his wholeness is tied up within that community, and his restoration is the, is the responsibility of that community. This is why Paul, when using the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, and he's talking about the gifts we've been given to serve the church. All of us have different gifts. There's one body, many parts. He says this. Remember this? There are many parts to but one body, which is why the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. 
The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, Paul says, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. The parts we think of as less honorable must be treated with special honor. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts have equal concern for each other. And then he finishes with this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's honored, every part gets to rejoice. We're one body with many parts. One part is suffering in this story. One man. And the reality is that every part in that community, every person at that pool, every person in Jerusalem, every person in Israel, every person in the world is suffering. There's no wholeness. There can't be wholeness when one part suffers. So that's Paul's way of talking about what the Bible talks elsewhere about, shalom. This Hebrew concept of wholeness that Jesus is tapping into, a word that means, according to one definition, complete reconciliation, I say the fullest flourishing every dimension, physical, social, emotional, spiritual, because all relationships are right. All relationships are right. Peace means that relationships are filled with joy. And so Jesus sends, he's saying, friend, it's clear to me that you lack shalom. You've lost it. Your wholeness, that you're far from this experience of shalom that I created you for, the beloved community that, that mirrors my life in community, Father, Son, Spirit, that's absent from your life. And, and that absence is a source of your pain, your suffering. Um, and do you want to experience that again? Because I can offer that to you. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, who wrote a book kind of about this, or at least a chapter in a book about this recently, said this, that wearing my skin is not a solitary practice. We all have our own skin. You know, you're all, you aren't connected at the hip, mo- most of you. <laughs> uh, but my wearing my skin is not a solitary practice. It's a thing that brings me into communion with all other bodies. It's what we have most in common with each other, that we wear skin. Which is why in Scripture, Jesus' followers are called to honor their bodies, just like they honor their bodies of their neighbors. First Corinthians 12. The ministry of Jesus, the gospel, is about embodying human experience, encountering those whose flesh has been broken, battered, beaten, and, and just offering wholeness and healing to them, saying, it's not, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Can I, do you want to get well? <laughs> do you want to be made whole? Do you want your life as well as the lives of all of those around you to flourish? I do. That's the question being posed to us this morning by Jesus. Spirit, soul, body, all of us. And by all of us, I mean like in the South, y'all. Do y'all desire that y'all get well? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the question on the table. And thus we need to be asking as a community, like, how might we engage that challenge? Like, how might we redouble our efforts toward building these midweek groups that we, we have, they kind of are out there, small groups, neighborhood groups, fellowship groups, where we can gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, but also just neighbors around tables and around meals and just say, how's your heart today? What's the state of your soul? Like, where do you lack wholeness? And how can I be a part of that? I really long for that in my life and your life. How can we join? How might we do this through the work of racial reconciliation? That's happening in our community. Um, not perfectly, but there's seeds of it. There's people that are committed to it. But how might that include all of us? Every single one of us, black, white, Asian, Latino, like every one of us gathering together, every member vital to the flourishing of the wholeness of our body. Um, what about gathering with people who have sharp differences from us? Theological, political, socioeconomic, and just saying that there should be no division in our body. None. There can't be. Gather, we gather on one reality. Christ is Lord of all. We're made for wholeness. Period. Exclamation point. That's it. Might we be people like that, so committed to wholeness that we seek to engage it with other people? 
So that's the first reality. We're not whole. We're not made to live alone. Here's number two, second reality. That even with that gracious invitation, we desperately try in our unwholeness very often to, to kind of make ourselves whole. So here's verse seven again. Sir, according to Jesus' question, I have no one. And then he goes on, uh, while I'm trying to get in the pool, someone else gets on ahead of me. And so that's this, uh, this myth of this pool that is omitted from many of our translations, this legend that uh, it's, it's about how this, every once in a while, this angel would come down and stir the waters, touch, there's even some art about this, and touch the waters of the pool, and you'd see the water stirring and, and, and impute healing waters or healing properties into the water. And then whenever that water stirred, the first person that touches the water, gets into the water, is cured of whatever disease. You're, you're blind, you can see. You're, par- you're paralyzed, you can walk. You know, you're depressed, you're not depressed. I mean, so everybody would be healed. And so this community amassed around this pool. You can just see them right on the edge of the water, ready and waiting, preparing themselves to jump in, dip a toe, because today could be my day. And for this man, maybe as well as those gathered there, this became his, their one intoxicating hope in life. Like, if I could just get in. Um, I mean, 38 years of just waiting for that water, waiting for healing, waiting for an angel to come down into his life and, and do something to fix him and fix his situation. And you can see the desperation in verse 7 that he's feeling, because rather than just give Jesus a yes or no quest, answer to his question, like, do you want to be made well? And yeah, <laughs> like, yes, who would say no? He gives this elaborate complaint, like, you know, because of my paralysis, I'm never the first person in the water. Every, I, every time I try, I'm stepped over, stepped past, stepped on. 38 years, I've never been able to seize my opportunity. And so there's a subtle and yet powerful commentary on what we do in our brokenness uh, when we know we're not well, when we go searching for healing. We, in other words, we all know deep down that we're not well. Are you with me? All of us know this whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually. And instead of looking to God and to the community of God for that healing, uh, the context in which God's given us to create wholeness, we look to something in what Paul says in Romans 1, creation. We look to a pool or a myth, so to speak. Something in the created order that we think is going to deliver this healing to us and, 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 and fix us. Um, Carolyn Knapp, I've shared this story with you before, but she was a journalist who's died, but she wrote about her 20-year battle with anorexia for years and and her hunger and longing for wholeness. Um, And she uses this phrase, if only, if only. And here's a quote from her book. She says, I lived by these words, if only, for decades. In my 20s, the objects of my desires were good jobs and, and thin thighs. If only I could write for a living, I'd be happy. If only I were 5, 10, or 15 pounds thinner, my life would be different. My 30s, that focus shifted to men. If only I had this relationship. And then I met my partner, Julian, <laughs> and those if-onlys changed. If only he was this height or that hair color, didn't have that habit. How deeply, she says, if the if-onlys can grab our hearts. If only I had this house, that taste, that man, then that would do it. I thought I was missing something or I'd miss something or might get something. And so I'd said, if only. If that won't work, maybe this will. And then she finishes by saying, the if-onlys speak almost always of a hunger for something more complicated than the objects themselves. They speak for identity, confidence, wholeness in areas of brokenness. If only. If only I could get in that water, then everything would be better. Everything. 
My life would be solved. What a, what a powerful commentary on our response to suffering. Um, we say, if only. If only other people were different. If only my life was different. If only this didn't happen to me then. Do you hear this man in there? Do you hear yourself? I mean, what's your if only? Think of it now. I mean, some of us immediately know our answer to that question. If this didn't happen, if I had that opportunity, if I could just do that over, if my life was different, and I'm telling you, for some of us, and I'm with you in this, some of those if onlys are very intoxicating things. They grab a hold of us. We can never let them go. Every day we wake up thinking about them. Um, And some of us, we feel this immense weight of brokenness in our lives, the depth of our desire for healing. They can be like this pool just sitting in front of us. If only I could get in. If only this would change. If If only. And we never move. We are stuck. We feel paralyzed. And that's actually the bad news of this story I'm about to give you. There's nothing in the pool. It's a myth. There's no angel. There's no stirring of the waters. Uh, Even if we get there, we get that magical moment, more than likely that's not going to solve all the problems. There's so much more to this guy's story, his hungers, his longings, his desires that needs healing. The if-onlys are just empty promises of healing. They're just, their wholeness that, that, there's, there's a wholeness that they can't deliver that Jesus wants to deliver this man. So try as we might to find our healing in these places. Here's the bad news. We never do. You never will. Happy Sunday. <laughs> like, aren't you glad you came to church? Uh, well, there's good news. There's, here's the third reality I want to point to you to, to end this, okay? So we're not whole. We try and make ourselves whole. And then verses 8 and 9, Jesus thankfully shows us how we get whole, okay? It's not in the pool. I love this. In verses 8, verse 8, I love this. Jesus, he, the man gives Jesus this sort of elaborate response, like, hey, if I could get in the water, it'd be better. And do you watch, watch this, verse 8, Jesus doesn't respond to it, sort of like you saw a squirrel or something. Just get up, pick up, and walk. It's like he didn't even hear the man. There's no invocation of God's name. There's no impartation of healing. He doesn't ever cancel, counsel. He doesn't even show what we call empathy. Like he's not a very empathetic figure in this story. Instead, he just says in language as unspiritual as you can imagine, get up, pick up, and walk. This is kind of like me telling my kids, hey, here's a straw, suck it up. Like, I'm kidding. But I love it because it seems to show that healing and wholeness are an active process that we need to be involved in. In other words, that that our healing is something that God has the power to activate within us. Which is, by the way, not a way of saying this is self-healing. This is not self-saving. This is not him saying, here's a straw, suck it up. Like, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, bro. He's not saying that. In fact, Jesus doesn't say, doesn't say, do you have the faith to be healed? He never says that. He doesn't say that it's because this man's lack of faith that he's unwell. He doesn't say that there's some previous sin in his life, he, he dealt with this in John 9, that he's paralyzed. He doesn't say that if you had more faith, you'd be walking, my son. He doesn't say if you just got in the pool, you'd, you'd have gotten there if you just believed better, if you just went to church more, if you just raised your hands when we sang, you'd, you'd be healed. He doesn't say that. In fact, the pool just disappears into the background. It's like it's gone. And Jesus just says, get up, pick up, and walk. Begin your journey. And in that way, as one commentator on John says, uh, one senses that Jesus' command is addressed as much to the man's mind as to his body. He's activating healing in him. He's saying, will you have the courage in this moment to trust me more than that pool? Will you have the courage, no matter the outcome, to just take a step? 
I mean, think of the courage and trust this man had to put in Jesus. He didn't know Jesus, like you or I know Jesus, to just obey this, this man who's just visiting Jerusalem. Imagine some of the thoughts are in his mind. What if I fall? What if I try and I fall? Like, will people laugh? I've never walked in my entire life. Will they mock? Will they talk? What if I don't fall? Like, what if this actually works? What will I do for a living? I've been begging for 38 years. I have no vocational skills. Where will I go? How will I survive? Who will I go to? There has been no one. I've been, I've been disowned. I have no faith community. I have no one. What will I do? I'm sure there's a lot on his mind in those moments, in that split second between Jesus' command and his courageous obedience. And that's the beautiful thing. It's a split second. Because whatever he was thinking, he immediately got up, picked up, and walked. He did what he was told to do. He didn't ask questions. He didn't do a Bible study. He didn't, he didn't say, Let's, I'm going to pray about that a little longer. He did it. He got up, he picked up, and he walked, which can mean this one thing, that God only begins to work his miracles in our lives when we take a step, a step. I'm not talking about a journey. I'm talking about a step of risky obedience. God's miracles seldom happen out of the blue, and they never happen in the lives of those who are passive and do nothing. God's saying, I want to engage you in this process. They're a mixture of God's power and our willingness. Um, This man's obedience to the, the words of Jesus is his healing in some ways. On Jesus' side, he's just concerned for this man. On the man's side, he just responds to Jesus. I'm just going to respond to you. Um, and take my first step. So that's the question on the table this morning as we seek to respond. What's your step? Sure, great. A man was healed 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem by Jesus, but you're here today. What's your step? The gospel is written to us. It might, what might risky obedience look like in your life? Um, whether that's an area of brokenness where you're, you're clear, I'm not experiencing flourishing and wholeness in my life right now. It's in my marriage, it's in my work, it's in my body. Or there's stuckness. Like, you're stuck by a pool, you're looking at the pool, you're just hoping something changes, and Jesus is saying, let me reorient you toward another reality uh, and, and move you forward in that direction. Forget about the pool. How might you be stuck like this man? It could be a season of isolation and loneliness. You might be somebody who's been stepped on, stepped over, or perhaps... Just going to put it out there. You've been the stepping on and stepping over. There's a community around this man. Maybe this is a deeply convicting word for you that, that this man's been in front of you for too long. It's your, your, your role now uh, to be courageously obedient and step toward another and offer healing. Um, it might look like having a difficult conversation, it might be, look like committing to deep friendship instead of shallow friendships. It might be asking someone in your life to help you see a situation from another perspective. What's your next step? And how might God be saying to you, get up, pick up, and walk? Um, Let me invite Andrew and the team back up here. And because I asked a big question, I I really do want to give you time to process. Um, I'm going to take a moment just for being quiet, and then I'll lead us in just a minute of prayer. So let's just be quiet for a moment. God, we confess collectively that we're not whole. There's division in our lives. There's hurt. 
There's heartache. There are deep wounds. Some of us, God, are experiencing this in our bodies very profoundly. For some of us, this is really hidden. It's in our hearts and our minds. But for all of us, God, we confess our brokenness to you. And we confess, God, our need for healing from you. And we confess our need, our feeling of paralysis and our need for you to meet us in that space. We're like this man. We feel incapable, God, inadequate. And so, God, here's our prayer. We ask that you'd, like Jesus, just see us in this moment as we sit here. See our kids as they come in. Come toward us, God, as you did to this man. Attend to our lives and our brokenness. And do, God, what only you can do. Bring wholeness where the world and the pools and where none of those things can, God. Bring to us what you alone can bring. That's our desire, God, our hope. And that's why we worship you, God. We believe that, God, you can alone bring us wholeness. So we open our lives to your work and your invitation. God, as you're inviting us to get up and pick up and walk and take a step, would that revelation come from your spirit? And as you reveal yourself to us, God, we'll thank you. Amen.